0: We're in James chapter 3. I think from almost the start of this letter, James strikes a nerve. James steps on our feet on a lot of different levels as his words expose and convict us because so much of what James is dealing with is just this practical everyday street-level outworking of our faith in Jesus Christ in everyday life, in in conflicts, in meetings, in relationships, just all of these places where our faith in Jesus Christ must be at the forefront, must come out in what we say and do. And James talks about how how we look at other people and make judgments about them, how we respond to trials, how well we listen to other people, how we... Respond to our own desires and and how we manage them and what we do when our desires are not met, and then he even talks about this propensity we have to want to control our our future to think that somehow we're we're masters over it and, and James deals with all of these and and, and just when we feel convicted in one particular area, then he sort of moves on to the next topic and steps on our toes in another place, another part of our, our living, and the Holy Spirit calls us to account one more time. It's, I, I think it's helpful to remember as we're walking through James that at the core of our struggle with sin, he's really helped us see from the beginning of his letter that fundamentally behind our struggle is this this problem he introduced back in chapter 1, verse 8, when he warned against our propensity toward double-mindedness. Remember that? In in James 1, 8, when he's talking in particular about the believer who is walking through suffering trials of some kind, and the instruction is, ask God for wisdom, and don't ask as one who doubts, because he says that's the double-minded person. That's the one who says... I'm suffering. I don't like my circumstances. I know I'm supposed to ask for wisdom, but I, I, I'm, he's doing so with a, a full dose of skepticism because I don't think anything's going to change. I don't think it's going to do any good. I don't think anything's going to happen. But the Bible tells me I need to ask for wisdom in this moment, and so I'll ask. And, and James says, don't ask in doubt. Don't be this double-minded person. When he uses that word double-minded in James 1.8, it's uh, dyspsychos, in, in the Greek, die, died, two or something divided into two. And in psychosis from suke, which is the word for soul. So it's two souls is really the idea. What it is? Um, it, it's one commentator describes it as double-hearted. Um, we think of the heart as the the center of our being, will, thoughts, emotions, intents, all of those things. And 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 that word is to try to capture the picture that there's this this division in the, interman, in the inner man that should not be so for believers in Jesus Christ. We should not be divided in this way, and yet we are. The Word of God warns against double-mindedness, the notion that we would believe God is sovereign, and God is good, and God is just, and I should cry out to God, and yet the actions that say I'm I'm going to try to run this myself. I'm going to do this myself. I'm not crying out to God, or I don't really, I don't functionally act like a person who believes in Jesus Christ when I should be bearing Christ-like fruit. Instead, I'm looking more and more like the world—a profession of faith in Christ, but not a life that follows Him. Over the last. Few sermons several times as as we've talked about this. I've used the word inconsistent and I've been convicted about my use of that as I was thinking about it this week because I I think that undersells the point that James is trying to make when he uses double-minded. Inconsistent is, you know, I can I can sign my name twice, and you're gonna see variations in how I sign my name, or I can I can grill hamburgers on the grill, and some can come out good and some can come out not so good. That's sort of inconsistent double-minded gets more down to the the person and being being two-faced i I say i am one thing and yet i i act like another i do another i think like another and so he is constantly pressing us as followers of jesus christ to be single-minded in our focus to to act out on the faith that we believe in jesus christ there is no place for living like two different people one who listens to the sermon, who can answer the spiritual questions, who knows what God requires, and yet who is consistently unwilling to obey. And probably nowhere is our double-mindedness more apparent than in our speech, in the words that we say, in our conversations, in our talk about other people. And that's the focus of James chapter 3. I want to suggest to you this morning, James 3, 1 through 12, teaches that control of our speech is a difficult challenge, marked by multiple failures, and yet, as believers in Jesus Christ, it is something we are urged to pursue. James is also wanting to give us hope that as difficult as it is to manage our speech, that there is hope for those who follow after Jesus Christ. Let me read the whole section, and then we'll come back to uh, the beginning. James 3, this is verses 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water." Four times in 12 verses, James specifically uses the word tongue. He refers to it in other ways as well throughout this passage, but he is emphasizing the tongue, that little organ that plays such a key part in our speaking, in the words that come out of our mouths, and that he makes the the focal point of this section of chapter 3. James, among other things, wants us to grasp the destructive power of our words. He wants us to see what it is we can do with our speech, but he also wants to let us know that as believers there is hope. Our words can be brought under control. There is a genuine spiritual battle and he alludes to this in verse six that's going on for our words, but we are not helpless in this. Let me talk about verse one first because I, I think as you read through this, verse one sort of seems, odd, at least as an introduction, and we know that this is the introductory verse to the section because we, we're seeing my brothers, he, he uses that phrase repeatedly to, to sort of set off when he's moving on a new point, point. And, and so verse 1, you, you look at it, and he could, you could really start in verse 2, and, and it would make perfect sense in talking about words and speech all the way through, and, and so how does verse 1 stand there? Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That my brother's phrase, he's already used six times so far in James. It's usually, again, to sort of set off a category, count it all joy, my brothers. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Know this, my beloved brothers, and so on. Here in this section, he's actually going to use it three times, almost to... Um, to to assure, to assume the best of his readers. When he says, my brothers, we can read that as my brothers and sisters because he's talking to the body at large and and it is a a sign of his affection for them. It is a reminder that as, as difficult as the instruction may be, he is assuming the best of them as those who are fellow followers of Jesus Christ. My brothers, not many of you should become teachers this does connect with the rest of chapter 3. The rest of chapter 3 is speech and words and what comes out of our mouths. Well, the connection really is there is a a particular category of people who are at particular risk for sinning with their mouths, and that is teachers. That that if there are those who who use their their speaking more often uh, in in front of an audience, in front of a group in some way, that, that and can cause harm with their words as well, it is teachers. And so he's he's starting here with teachers because he's recognizing that there is a, a particular category of people who are susceptible to this sin. That position of teacher was highly coveted in the first century, something that people wanted to do, that they aspired to do within the church. Nothing wrong with the aspiration so long as it comes from the right motives. But James is really speaking from his own experience, and that's why he says, um, for you know that we who teach will be judged. He's not sitting in a a condemning position. He's saying we together, those of us who teach, understand the level of accountability that we have. So he's speaking of his own experience and saying we, more than anyone, need to be acutely aware of the risk in talking, in in, in saying too much, in standing in front of people and speaking. Uh, This is... This is biblical common sense, if you will, because we can go back to the Proverbs and see where God says this repeatedly. Proverbs 10, 19, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. A lot of words, there's likelihood of being sin that follows with that. Proverbs 17, 27 then mirrors that and says, whoever restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. It's a simple biblical principle. The more you talk, the more likely you are to say something that that hurts, that offends, that sins against God. And so therefore God says, restrain your speech. Use discretion. Not everything that you think needs to automatically come forth from your mouth. Sometimes the the, the silence is the better choice. So verse one is not... Not so much addressing false teaching. That was certainly a grave danger in the early church and is addressed repeatedly throughout the New Testament. It's a danger today as well. But James is simply talking about ordinary teachers like himself, like pastors, like Bible study teachers or teachers of children here at church. He's saying, you, you speak a lot. And you have the added responsibility of speaking God's word to people, of, of instructing them and helping them understand God's word. And so you incur a higher level of accountability. It's not meant to frighten people. It's just to state as fact that no one should rush into teaching God's word in the local church unprepared or thoughtlessly, or just because it looks cool. It's something that we should Think about. It's something that comes with a high level of accountability, and so you should move toward teaching cautiously, and those who do teach should do so carefully. Prepare well. Study hard. Be in God's Word. Be faithful to the passage. Pray fervently for God to help you in, in your teaching. Pray that the Spirit of God would accomplish what what any teacher knows they cannot accomplish, and that is the actual work in the heart of those to whom they are teaching. Pray that God would do that. Ask for wisdom. Don't pretend to know more than you do. Don't be afraid to say, I don't know when somebody asks you a question. I, I need to think about that, or I need to pray about that. Um, humbly prepare well. And so for James, this whole introduction to this section on speech is really a humble acknowledgement of his own accountability. He's not sitting in some lofty position above everyone saying, you you should not try to be where I am. You should not try to come up to the level I'm at. He's saying, no, we all, we all as teachers are accountable. And then in verse two, he broadens it out and says, we all stumble in many ways. He's starting with himself and other teachers to implore them together to hear this message, but he's, he's going to broaden it out. We are all prone to sin with words. Verse two can be read... In a couple of wrong ways, when he says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. The, the, the first wrong direction we can go is with the first part of that verse. We, For we all stumble in many ways and take sort of a casual response to sin sort of take this as, well, we all stumble in many ways. We all sin, and, and, and so therefore we're just all susceptible. It's common and normal and, and ultimately almost an attitude of I'm helpless to stop it because we all do this in so many different ways. The, the other way is to take the rest of that verse and, and believe that what it's contending for is that we have some level of perfectionism in this life, that, that somehow we need to become sinless in, in this life, that that's what he's calling for. One commentator describes the flow of verses one and two this way. Some of us must teach. All of us frequently fall, particularly in the area of speech. Teachers who fall are more severely judged than others. Therefore, do not many of you become teachers. Really, in in, in verse two, he's now broadening it to the whole Christian audience and saying, we all have multiple failures, or you could read it, we all fail in multiple ways, that that that. that It's ambiguous enough, his language, that that James is either saying, and I don't think these are one or the other. I think it's probably a little bit of both. We all sin in multiple occasions. We all sin repeatedly, and we all sin in multiple different ways. There's different kinds of ways that we sin. Either reading is acceptable. The point, though, is that we don't content ourselves with that. We don't say, well, yep. We all fail in multiple ways, that's just who we are, and we sort of leave it at that. Because the rest of the verse goes on to press us toward maturing and growing, and that's when he talks about the perfect man. That word for perfect is the idea of whole, or complete, or reaching a state of fullness. It's the idea of maturing. James 1, when it speaks about the testing of our faith, producing steadfastness, and steadfastness, when it completes his work, grows us toward being perfect and complete. It is, it is moving us in maturity. We're being pressed in tests to be steadfast, and that through that steadfastness, we are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And so that's the idea that he has in mind here when he says that the one, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble, he is a perfect man. He is, he is maturing. He is complete now, being more and more like Christ. It's not mandating perfection. This is God's word giving us hope. We'll come back to this at the end. This is God's word saying there is hope in this area of controlling our tongue, that we are able to, by God's grace, manage it and be more and more like Christ. But there's really more here that he begins to allude to in verse two, where he starts and says, we all stumble. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. He's connecting speech To life here, speech to the body, control of speech leading to control of the whole being. And he's beginning to make the point now that he'll develop in these next verses that control of speech is significant because what we say is powerful. It comes with consequences. Look at these next few verses again, verses three through six. Let's just read those one more time. If we put bits in the mouths of horses, So they obey us. We guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also. They're so large, driven by strong wind. They are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue. It's a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness, set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by our words are powerful james starts to make this point in verse 2 but he really blows it up in verses 3 through 6 that the tongue is this small muscle in the body it, it, and he compares it to the bit in the horse's mouth this large beast has this small piece of metal that directs the the the, the, the steps of that horse it moves that horse one way or another the rudder is a small percentage of the the whole ship, of the whole vessel, one small flat piece of metal compared to the whole vessel. And yet, the vessel doesn't go without it. It doesn't move in direction because the rudder controls the direction at which it goes. That's the influence that my words have over the rest of my life. And, And James desperately wants his readers to understand that what I say is not only powerful for charting the course of my own life, but my words can harm. Evil speech injures, lying words damage and hurt other people. Uh, Sam Alberry, writing on this says, this is worse than sticks and stones. This not just dismisses the, the old childish sort of saying that we would have, but it's worse than that because the tongue has a disproportionate effect over the body, over the direction of the life, and over the influence of the people around, affecting the people around you. Now, uh, take in mind the positive note. and He's not so much stressing that here, but the reality in Proverbs does this. On the positive side, that means even if I see myself as as a relatively small and inconsequential person, by God's grace, I can use my words to edify you. I I can use my words to help somebody who I see of greater stature than me. I can speak truth to them. I can exhort them. I can love them and serve them with my words. There's great influence for good that I can have with the words that I use. But James really is warning of the potential for evil. The things that we do, that we say, that bring harm, that are caustic. And so he starts with that illustration of the small spark that prompts the wildfire that destroys thousands of acres and hundreds of homes and ruins all of these lives. And now he's saying, your words, my words, my mocking words, my slanderous words, my quiet but cutting words, my false words. My arrogant words, my cursing words, my angry words, my mumbled under my breath, but probably just loud enough so you hear me across the room words, my blame-shifting words, my thoughtless words, in one moment of unchecked anger just blurted out, have the power to destroy. And that's what James is, is trying to help us to see here, that my words can destroy people, that I can bring them great harm. God's word is pulling no punches here. When those words come out of your mouth, they are like daggers. That's exactly the, the picture Proverbs twelve eighteen uses. There's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity and the privilege to go back and ask for forgiveness and acknowledge that we said something hurtful and and ask for forgiveness, but as believers in Jesus Christ, we also don't have the excuse of saying we didn't know better because we are being warned repeatedly, and especially here in James 3, that we need to guard our words, that we can destroy with them. Verse 6 in particular just leaves no stone unturned. It's an interesting verse. Translators have tried to make it clear for us, but even then, uh, verse 6 just literally, the beginning of that verse from the Greek would say, the tongue is a fire. The tongue is the world of wickedness set among our members, the one staining our whole body. All of our English translations have, have lost the definite article there. They say it's a world of unrighteousness. It is, he uses the article the, and, and it is the tongue is the world of Of wickedness, of unrighteousness set within our members that brings defilement and staining to the whole body. What a what a picture that is. Now, it helps to think about what James means when he uses that word world. He uses it a couple of other times. James 1:27, keep yourself unstained from the world. James 4:4, friendship with the world is hostility toward God. So when he uses world, he's talking about that which is at enmity with God, that which is hostile, opposed to God, that which is consumed with ungodliness and wickedness. So here in chapter 3, when he's trying to convey to us the picture of the the function of our words as part of our whole being, our life, he's trying to help us to see that the the word, the, the, the tongue, the words that we speak, are like this centerpiece of wickedness. They, they sort of set a direction. They, they have this tremendous power to represent all that is in the world and all that is hostile to God because too often our words imitate the world. They, they sound like the things that we hear in our culture and watch on TV, see in the movies. We, we repeat those very things that are cruel or unkind or coarse at best. And, and, and that's what he's warning about here. He's not saying the rest of your body is inconsequential in terms of sin. There's still lots of things. There's still sexual sin. There's still um, assaulting someone with your hands. There's still other things that our body participates in. But if I were to ask you to think back to the most recent occurrence of you causing hurt or insult to another person and what were the means of you doing that, I would dare say if we did show of hands, the vast majority of us would agree it was by our words, that it was something that we said. And, and frankly, when I say that, some of you are also able to think back and you are remembering a time when you were the one receiving that hurt and, and you can remember something that was said to you years and years and years ago that still brings hurt a word that was spoken to you in some way that that still brings pain. That is the power of my speech. And James is saying it will lead you into sin. It will pollute your body. It will set aflame the course of your life. I I can sin with my speech in such a way as to create lasting, widespread damage. Again, if I were to ask you, how many of you, as you think back on regrets in life, how many of those regrets revolve around something you said? Something that maybe you even ask forgiveness for and reconciled with the person, and yet you remember that distinctly and think, why did I say that? I just wish I hadn't said that in that moment in that to that person. Last part of verse 6 then sort of brings it home in terms of the origin of all this. How great... Uh, uh, sorry, I was at the end of verse 5. Verse End of verse 6. Um, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. He's already referred to how destructive our words are in terms of defiling our own body, harming others, setting a damaging course in life. But here James points back to what's behind all of our destructive speech, and he points back to Satan. He says there, there is a satanic nature to evil words when we sin with our mouths. And and this makes perfect sense. Jesus called Satan the father of lies. Revelation speaks of Satan as being the accuser of the brethren day and night. It also speaks of Satan deceiving the nations. Satan spreads destruction by words that deceive and accuse, but he also does so through our words. He he speaks evil through us, and he harms and destroys through our words. And James is warning us here, don't take this lightly. Don't don't act like, well, it's it's just words. It's just something I said in passing, and it's not that big of a deal. When we speak evil to or about another person, it's as if we are being the devil's spokesman. That's, that's what James is trying to convey to us at this point, that the origin of that evil speech is hell itself, and you are bringing pain to someone else's life. You are being an instrument of Satan. Sam Albury again writes, if, if we all speak with the same unpleasant moral accent, It is because all our words hail from exactly the same place. All that spoken fire spewed from all those lives through through all history and across the whole world has its origin here. Satan is the source ultimately of our evil speech. And we are acting on his behalf when we speak in such a way. Just read once again the last part of this chapter, starting again in verse seven. For every kind of beast... Bird, reptile, sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by man, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water." This language at the end of this section really brings home what I I said to you at the beginning, and that is James is saying there is this double-mindedness that should not mark us as believers. There is this two-faced sort of hypocrisy that should not characterize it. How, he says, my brothers and sisters, how is it possible that at 10.45, you are singing of the glory and majesty and greatness of God, and somewhere after noon, you are in your car, and you are speaking to someone made in his image, and you are speaking sharp, evil words to that person. And that's why James is saying, how how can this be? How can the same mouth bless and then curse? It is this double-minded, split-personality, Instability, if you will, that runs contrary to what it is to follow after Jesus Christ. That that word in verse eight, when he says that the tongue is a restless evil, the word for restless is the same as um, the one who is unstable in James one. It's the same Greek word. It's a. It, it, it's just an instability in life that comes from professing one thing and yet words that say something completely different that is just not congruent at all with somebody who follows after Jesus Christ because that's not how Jesus would speak. Those are not the words Jesus would use. And so we should not be using them. And, and, and it shows a heart that is too easily given over to speak that which the world speaks, to speak for, for Satan and, and, and what we've picked up from the world. This, this, this passage, brothers and sisters, I'll be like James and, and appeal to you as brothers and sisters, this passage is painful. I, I, I've spent all week in this passage, so I'm, I'm just now unloading some of the pain on, on you all, because this is a convicting passage about the things that we say. And it should be, because the intent of this passage is to stop us from treating this lightly. It's to stop us from saying, I didn't really mean that when I said that, it's no big deal, it's just words. This is to say, listen, we all stumble in many ways, especially in our speech, and God's word is not giving us a pass. It's not saying, but that's okay. God understands. It's saying, no, this is, this is terribly destructive, and you don't want to bring this damage. And it will not only wreck the lives of other people, but it will chart a course for your own life. And so is there hope Over and over, this passage, as I thought about it this week, and I prayed it before the sermon because it's what struck me as I've read this passage. Over and over again, I can just see that glimpse of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 in that incredible moment of, of coming in and seeing this vision of God on his throne. And instead of clapping or cheering or being excited, Isaiah is broken. I am ruined. Because why? I am a man of unclean lips, the filth that has come out of my mouth. The things that I have said to other people, the ways that I have wrongly used my words, all he can grasp in that moment is the terrible consequences of his speech. So is there hope? I think there is. It's a little bit, and the passage we'll come to next week at the end of chapter 3. I think there's some that relates. But I also, I point you back to verses 2 and verses 10 again, because I think they give us reason. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. And verse 10, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not be so. When verse 10 says that this is not who we should be, and verse two holds out the possibility of being able to control our speech, I don't think God is toying with us at this point. I think God is saying, I want you to understand the seriousness about this, but I also want you to know that you've not been left helpless in this area. What comes out of your mouth is it's not just an impulsive thing that happens and you have no control about it. God seeks to equip you to win in this battle for control over your speech. And he has given for our speech the same means that he has given for virtually every area of sin and struggle that we deal with. The word of God, the spirit of God, the community of, of God's people, and the grace of God. The the reality that we all stumble, that that James has already made clear, should not cause us to resign ourselves to failure, or as we sometimes do, we, we hate failure, we don't know what to do with failure, so we blame shift and we blame other people or circumstances for our failure. It must be somebody else's fault. Listen to the words of Psalm 103, 13 and 14. It says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Psalm 103 is is, is all about God's mercy and forgiveness. It's the psalm that speaks of him removing our sins as far as the east is from the west. And it says there that he knows. He knows that we are frail. God knows. He knows our propensity toward this battle with double mindedness. He knows our struggle with wanting to say the wrong thing in the moment. God knows but he desires to be merciful to us. He wants to help us. He wants to show compassion to us and he wants to lovingly help us to grow in this area. But he does, even in Psalm 103, he qualifies all of this by saying those who fear him. You see it there in verse 13, the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Twice more in that Psalm, verse 11, verse 17, God's steadfast love toward those who fear him. And and, and so that should prompt in us the question, how How does one who fears God, how does one who is in awe of God and worship God, how does that one respond to sinful speech? What is a God-fearing response to sinful speech? And, and, And we know this, but sometimes we just need to review it again. It is to humbly confess what we've said as sin. It is to start by confessing to God and saying, I agree with what your word says. And James 3 has given us language with which to proceed in our confession because sometimes our confession is sort of like, sorry that I said that. Shouldn't have said that word. And and, and God's word is saying, if I'm going to confess this to God, I'm going to acknowledge that I, I didn't speak like Christ. I actually probably brought destruction because of what I said. I realized the power and influence of my words and I am confessing this as sin to you. I, I understand that that these words originate not, not with you, but in hell, that they, they come from Satan. It is a confession that, that obviously understands what it is that we are confessing and asks for forgiveness. He promises to forgive. He desires to forgive us and then to ask for help. We need help. James couldn't be any clearer when he says in verses 7 and 8 that man has tamed all sorts of wildlife. He can get all sorts of animal tricks. You see them all on social media all the time, all the things that man trains animals to do. He says they can do all that, but they, you can't tame the tongue. Verse 8, he says, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. I don't think what he's saying there is just, it, it, it just means that we, we have no chance here, and this is just utter failure. What he's trying to say to us is controlling your tongue is not a matter of, of just willpower and effort, like I can do this. Just like I can train my dog to do a trick, I can train my mouth to to not say something bad. He's saying, no, if if this is going to be sort of a man-centered, behavioristic kind of way of controlling your speech, you need help. No human being can tame the tongue, but a human being empowered by the Spirit of God, enabled by God's grace. That's a different story. You are, you are given a capacity now to not be a slave to sin. And so controlling our speech is not something we can do on our own, but it is something that God equips us to do. If we are not to mingle blessing and cursing and there's hope for maturing in our speech, it will be because we first and foremost admit, I am, I am a fool in this area, Lord. I need help in this area. I am weak and I struggle and I desperately need help. And then the resources that God gives us, his word. We need to immerse ourselves in his word. His word needs to be renewing our minds, as Romans 12, 1 and 2 say, so that... The next time that the, the pressure comes, we are thinking God's words after him. We're thinking about what scripture has said in this moment, not what the world has said, not what the what the people do in the movies when they are pressured and tempted in a certain way and they say things. No, I'm thinking about what God's word says. I've immersed myself in it and I love it and I read it so that it transforms my speech. His spirit, he... he He reminds us in Galatians to keep in step with His Spirit. We need to strive to be obedient to His Spirit, to ask for His Spirit to help, to to help us be sensitive, so that when His Spirit is is, is prodding us about our speech, convicting us about something we're about to say, we respond to that. We we hear God using His own word to to call us back and exhort us towards saying what is right. We need the help of the community of believers. We need the the local church around us to walk with us, to hold us accountable. Ephesians says to speak the truth in love, so that when our speech is coarse, when our speech is improper, when our speech is hurting other people, that some dear brother or sister in Christ says, hey brother, that's not helpful, that's not funny, that's not kind." that's not edifying, somebody that will come alongside and speak truth to us. And we certainly need the body for when we fail, we fall, as he says, and stumble in many ways to be those hands and feet that come alongside and help us back up and walk with us and remind us that we are forgiven in Christ. And then we need God to continue to pour out his grace If you put this in the language of Ephesians of put off and put on, we are putting off, cursing, mocking, lying, insulting, and putting on words of blessing and helping and edifying and and strengthening. And we need God's grace to do that. And if we need God's grace, that means we need to pray. How often do you set out on your day and, and make your speech an item of prayer at the start of that day? Lord, help me today to use my words well. Guard my tongue from saying foolish things, and help me to speak that which is helpful for building others up. Please, I need your grace today to speak into others' lives. Brothers and sisters, our speech must not be marked by double-mindedness. I'll leave you with the words of Psalm 1914. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray.